All right, well, we do have handouts in the back for this morning's Sunday School. So this morning, we are in Lesson 8 of the book, Deity and Decree. So we're in Chapter 4, The Positive Attributes. And just a quick plug, so uh, we do have a couple of copies of the book. If you're interested, you can, um, you can make a small donation and, and grab a copy of a book uh, that we've got sitting out there in the back. So this morning, we're going to keep going with our catechism question. I know we, we're going to make it, guys. Like, we, we, will, we will have this down uh, by uh, uh, come to the decree part, all right? Then we've got two catechis- catechism questions for that. So let's do this together. So question seven. I'll give the question, then we will all respond with the answer. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All right. Yeah, just a helpful, succinct way as we get started thinking about the Lord. And then who'd be willing to read from our confession? I've got um, chapter two, paragraph two, which is really what a lot that we're going to focus on this morning is going to be from that second paragraph. Pastor Des? God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone and in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereignly, most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, and upon them, whatsoever he pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. All right, awesome. Thanks, Pastor Des. And you can see some of those areas where I've highlighted or underlined is really what we're going to draw attention to this morning as we wrap up on the positive attributes of God. So last week, when we talked about the positive attributes, we hit on three in particular, and this was by way of eminence. So the things where we see virtues in creatures, so in God, but without any imperfection, right? So we talked about negative attributes, we talked about relative attributes, and now we're talking about positive. So we hit on last week, holiness, God in conformity to himself. We talked about God's um, uh, holiness, majesty, and uh, his ethical majesty, right? Those two concepts. We talked about God's wisdom, understanding all things understandable, that idea of knowledge and wisdom, right? That overlap. We thought about those two things. And then we thought about God's will, right? Um, uh, God in one mere simple act, willing absolutely the being of everything that he pleases to will. God's determining uh, all things, right? So this morning, we're really going to go from that section of of will, and then we head this morning into liberty, and then we're going to hit on omnipotence, or God being all-powerful, and then lastly, God's perfection, uh, which is just a nice capstone way for us to think about uh, these uh, positive attributes. So, with that, we'll take a look this morning at liberty. So, liberty. How, how do we discuss the liberty of God or the freedom of God? As again, this is something that we see within creatures, but more so in God, right? By way of comparison. 
So as it says on your notes, liberty, God willing himself necessarily and freely, but willing the existence of all else, not necessarily, but freely. Now this distinction that we're making here as, as we get started is just to make a nuance that God and creatures, the creator and creatures are distinct and different. And so we're using these terms to help bring out that difference. So as Ranahan says there on your notes, uh, who'd be willing to read uh, that quote uh, from, uh, from Sam Renahan where it says, we say that? Yep, Crystal? We say that God will himself necessarily because God does not exist by the will of another. God is, I say, existing in and of himself and not in the All right, excellent. That's one of the things that we see when we look at some systematic theologies. This idea in which God exists necessarily and freely, right, of of his own will. But creatures do not exist necessarily, right? Necessarily belongs only to God. But creatures exist freely, freely from the standpoint that God creates creatures of his freedom. It's of his decision, right? It's God exercising his wisdom. So when we talk about liberty, liberty, there's that nuance that we want to make as we get started. Now, this freedom that God has in himself that he exercises with his will, that freedom is manifested in God's works, right? It's manifested in several different ways. And we're going to see that when we look at omnipotence, which is going to be God's power and how he executes or does what he pleases. So even with that thought, turn with me to the book of Psalms. So we, uh, we hit on one psalm, uh, Psalm 135.6, which really says the same thing that we're about to see in Psalm 115. So turn with me to Psalm 115, and let's read, uh, if I can have a volunteer, read verse 3. Psalm 135? Uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 115, verse 3. They, they say roughly the same thing, but yes, we're, we're going to do Psalm 115.3. 115.3? Yep. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Yeah, that excellent thought, right? So God does all that he pleases. And not only is this an expression of power, right, that no one can restrain him, but it is an expression of freedom, that God is the most free, and he does all that he pleases without restraint. Or we can take a look at... um, that, that text in Proverbs 21, please turn to your uh, Bibles, uh, just one book over to Proverbs 21.1. Because what we're hitting on, again, has that overlap from last week. That God is working all things out, and, and this really could come under that umbrella of God's sovereignty. Right? When we talk about God's sovereignty, it's God doing all that he pleases, and it's almost like we're bringing out these different aspects to his sovereign rule. There's there's the freedom piece of it. There's the, uh, there's the will piece of it, right? There's, there's these different aspects that we're trying to bring out and, and hone in on, right? Uh, one passage you might remember as we're turning to Proverbs 21, verse 1, is that text from Ephesians 1 that we hit on last week in verse 11, where it says that God is the one um, uh, uh, that, that in him, right, that he's working all these things according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of 
of his will, right? So God is the one who's working all these things. And then we look at a text like Proverbs 21.1, right? So you have some of these texts that are all-encompassing, right? They'll use phrases like all things or everything. But then let's look at Proverbs 21.1. Who can read uh, uh, Proverbs 21, verse 1? Yeah. So then it's not just the, if, if you will, in general, all things, right? As though that could be a generality, right? All, all things refers to all things. But then even here, the specifics, right? And notice in the text in verse one, it's not simply the actions, right? Or, or um, uh, uh, the, the physical, external, outside stuff. But what is it talking about? It's talking about the inside. The king's heart, right, is in the hand of the Lord, and he's directing it wherever he pleases. Now, this is not to say in which man is no longer responsible for his decisions or that man does not make decisions willingly according to what he desires. But there is a sense in which God is completely sovereign even over the minute details of everything, right? Now, how exactly all those pieces come together, right, they will be a blur in our mind, right? We, we don't have the the same thoughts that God has. But there's this aspect in which when we think about God's liberty, that he is the one who really does all that he pleases. So Burkhoff has a helpful, helpful quote here before we go to the book of Romans. So Burkhoff says in his systematic theology, God determines voluntarily what and whom he will create. And the times, places, and circumstances of their lives. He marks out the path of all his rational creatures, determines their destiny, and uses them for his purposes. And though he endows them with freedom, yet his will controls their actions. The Bible speaks of this freedom of God's will in the most absolute terms. Now, we're only going to take a look here at one of these texts, but I wanted to include in that quote a whole bunch of other texts that he cites as they're very helpful, you know, as, as you have time during the week. You, you could even take a minute and think through and see and, and, and behold our God in his, in his freedom. But there's a text that I could not escape from this morning as we deal with this subject, and that is the subject of Romans chapter 9. Turn with me to the book of Romans. All right, so Romans definitely feels like a crown jewel, not to be... Uh, pushed against other jewels on, on, uh, on, on the crown, but um, Romans highlight so much, right? And, there, and there's such a depth to what we find in the book of Romans. And we're going to read verses 8 through 14, and then I want us to take a pause. So we will start in verse 8 of Romans chapter 9. And if I could have a volunteer read verses 8 through 14. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but to Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. All right, excellent. And we're going to pause here at verse 14. 
and I want, I want you to think about this, right? So Paul, uh, in, the, in the book of Romans, Paul takes on these objections, right? Uh, and you see this like in Romans chapter 3, right? Or in Romans chapter 6, right? Uh, and now we even see this in Romans chapter 9, where he says, what shall we say then? And he's almost anticipating, right? As, as we read what we just read about sovereign divine election, there is something within us that makes us nervous, right? Where it's like, wait, hold on a second, right? Are you saying, right? We, we, start, we start to think in that way because we look, look what it says in verse 14, right? Paul's anticipating because he knows it's going to go in this direction when we talk about God's election, right? And it talks about individuals. In verse 14, he says, is there injustice on God's part? Is God unrighteous, right? And in the context for doing this. Now, I want you to think for a second. Before we read verse 15, just, just take 20 seconds and think, how would you respond to this objection? Where, where would you go, right? Well, okay, God's not unrighteous. And, and God, God does elect. How, how would you respond, right? Just, just think about this. Let's just take, you know, 10, 10, 10 seconds and just kind of think about that for a minute. How would you respond in this context in Romans chapter 9? How would you respond? What I want you to notice, I want you to notice before we go to verse 15, I want you to notice two things. Number one, Paul does not concede and say to the objection, oh, wait a second. Now that you ask the question in that light, what I've just said previously is no longer true. So he's not, he's not going back and changing the doctrine of election because it'll anticipate the question, well, wait, that's not fair. God, God, God can't do that and still be righteous, right? So he doesn't go back on that, right? You see that in, in the end of verse 14 where he says, by no means, right? It's a very strong expression. But then notice this. Look with me in verse 15. He then gives his defense. What is his response? And and this is going to be, I'm just giving you a heads up now, it's going to be a really long way, and then we're going to come back to how this ties in with God's liberty. So, read verse 15. So he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, so here's the support, right? You see that in verse 15, the four, right? He's giving his defense. What does God say to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now think about this. God is using this citation from Exodus 33 as his defense. Well, I, I want us to really trace this. So go with me to the book of Exodus, right? And there's always something exciting, right? When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, right? You're like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's see what's going on here. What was that context? Why is Paul citing this? Why is he using it in this way? So turn with me to the book of Exodus and we're going to be in Exodus 33. And we're going to start in verse 15. So while you're turning there, a quick context. So Exodus 32 is that infamous chapter, right? It goes down in infamy because it's the golden calf incident, right? Where with Aaron, right, all the people, they take their gold and they form this calf and then they worship it, right? And Moses comes down. And Moses uh, 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 draws near in chapter 33, and enters the tent of meeting, but the tent of meeting has been moved, 
and put outside the camp of Israel. And Moses draws near. And Moses starts his intercession with the Lord, right? Hey, this is, this is your people. Please don't forsake your people. He's interceding on their behalf. And with that, let's pick up verse 15. Who'd be willing to read verses 15 through 19? I know it's a little heftier of a section, but who would be willing to read? Yeah, Anthony. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from there or from here. Indeed, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I, and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Then Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses say, said, I pray... I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show you compassion on whom I will show compassion. Yeah, it's beautiful text. And I, I want you to notice that. So um, no, notice that in verse 18 and in verse 19, right? With Moses' request, God, show me your what? Glory. And this is going to tie in with this, the, the third point that we're going to hit on, uh, God's perfection or his glory or his blessedness. But notice how his glory is tied in verse 19 when we talk about God's goodness and will proclaim what? The name, the Lord, right? He's going to proclaim um, his name, which is the Lord. And then he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So this idea of God's glory, his name, and then in his name, there is the passing on of God being gracious and God being merciful. So all these things are tied together. And, and we've talked about this, right, and, and where, where we see that God is his attributes, right? And a name, right, especially in the Hebrew context, a name represents something. Like Kyle doesn't represent anything. It's just a cool name my parents came up with, right? But, in, in, but with the Hebrews, a, a name represented something. There was definition with it, right? And so we see here these three ideas, God's glory, his name, which is revealing himself, and then this idea that God has mercy on whomever he has mercy. And that is this idea of liberty. So then Paul's argument, right, if, if, if we're kind of tracking through here in Exodus 33, God's basically saying it is in God's very nature to do whatever he wants. He will have mercy on whoever he wants because it is God's very nature. It's his very being. It is who he is. And so when you look in Romans chapter 9, and we talk about divine election where God choosing sinners for salvation in Christ, right? And there's this sense in which, well, wait a second. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded, as Paul does in Romans 9.15, it is God's very essence in which Paul turns to that defends this idea of divine election, that God is free to choose whomever he desires, because God 
is the most free God. And it is in his freedom that he shows and puts on display his glory, or as we see, his name, right? So we see all these ideas tied together, and we see it. We see it and how it's expressed in God's works, right? Or as we see here, in God's election. So what does this do? Right? Not only, not only divine election, right? But, but, but taking one step back, right? Now this ties into God's liberty, that God is the most free of all beings, right? God's freedom. How do we then respond? Well, I think we should respond in, in at least two ways. And on your notes, you can see this here. The first is in worship. As we think about our sovereign God, who is free and good and righteous and holy and merciful. It is good for us to be reminded that our God does not have any restrictions, right? And he's not a dictator in which we should fear, right? But God without restriction means this this blessing that can't be restricted because of some incompleteness in God, right? It, it, it brings out this fullness. But secondly, secondly, God's freedom promotes humility, right? And, and we see this even, even as Paul brings us out in this idea of election, right? The most glorious thing that we can recall about us, right? God saving us in Christ. And do we take credit for that? No, right? It is all of grace. And Paul, like he shows us in Romans 9, is not that it is all of grace in that moment in time, but it traces itself all the way back to the counsels of God before creation. And what does that do? That humbles us, right? Sovereign grace humbles our heart. That is the antidote to pride, is to see ourselves in light of God's freedom. So, so we see this idea of freedom as we think about these positive attributes, the way of eminence, you know, more so in God, right? Creatures are free in a sense, but more so in God in that ultimate sense. So secondly, on your notes, now this idea of power, God's power or his omnipotence, right? Omnipotence is bringing out the two words, right? All and power, right? It's all powerful, right? And, and, um, <clears throat> and I, I, I really like how this is set up, right? So you think, you think of God's will, what pleases him, and then he determines all these things according to his good pleasure, according to his purpose, right? And that even ties back in like we talked last week about his wisdom. He's working all these things according to the counsel Right, of his will, right? That, that idea of counsel, that idea of wisdom. And then we think about his freedom. He is free to do whatsoever he pleases, and in all things he is good and righteous. But now we talk about power, because power, right, to us is that manifestation and execution of all those things. It is the ability with which God exercises and accomplishes all that he plans. And again, it in one sense falls under this umbrella of God's sovereignty because over and over and over again, it is showing that the Lord reigns, that he is sovereign. There are no competitors. So with, 
So with that, I really liked how Burkhoff lays out five evidences, right? How, how should we think about God's omnipotence, him being all-powerful? So there's five evidences that we're going to look at. So first is God's name. So point A on your notes, right? The name of God. So El Shaddai, right? And it has this idea, God Almighty, right? And we see this in Genesis 17 and verse 1. On your notes, who'd be willing to read Genesis 17, verse 1? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me Excellent. So we see this idea that God addresses himself as God Almighty. And this title or this name, like, like we've learned from several other lessons, God's name is a way in which we learn who God is. And so God is all powerful. Right? But then secondly on your notes, and Burkhoff lays out here, right? we can think about God's all-powerfulness or his power, generally speaking. And we've already looked at Psalm 115.3, right? God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. But look with me at Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, where it says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And then I love this right at the very end here. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you, right? And we're going to see this over and over again. Or Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, right? And with a specific now to a generality. But with God, all things are possible. And they are, they are possible because God is not restricted in his power. Or even as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19, where he says, as he's praying for the church in Ephesus, and he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So there's this idea in which when we think about it generally, that God's power is without restriction. And you can see these different phrases that are all trying to indicate that. Almighty God, right? Or that uh, it, it is the immeasurable greatness, right? Or that with God, all things are possible. But then third on your notes, and this is where he gets into to three specifics, right? Where it is in creation, providence, or governance, and redemption, right? So creation, providence, and redemption. So look with me in Romans chapter 1, right? If you're in Romans 9, just go a couple over. And then in Romans chapter 1, look with me in verse 20. And if I can have a volunteer read verse 20, be willing to read. I got you. Yep. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Right, so here we see God's power explicitly connected with creation. Right, so creation is a way in which God has manifested his power in, with the things that have been made, right? And so then our appropriate response as we see creation is Psalm chapter 8, right? It, it's a response of praise. It's a response of worship, 
right? But then on your notes, D. So we go from God's power in creation now to God's power in providence or governance. So when we talk about providence, and by the way, just going to, uh, I want to put a little you know, ticket in there. So I believe it's John Flavel who has a, a helpful uh, little publication on God's providence that I would, that I would commend to you. Um, uh, as, as God's providence is his, uh, him executing and completing all things that he's planned after creation, creation being the start. So in Hebrews chapter 1, if you look there at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, where it says on our notes, as we look at God's power and his providence, it says, he, that's referring to Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And notice this, he, that is Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But notice that. It is the word of his power. So not only is creation a display of his power, but even his upholding and directing and governing all things is through his power. So then lastly, we see with God's power as it relates to redemption to us as sinners in Christ. Now, if I can have a volunteer, read Romans chapter 1 in verse 16, where we see here with Romans chapter 1 in verse 16. All right, excellent. So we've seen this aspect that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Or it makes, me, it makes us even think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? Christ, the power and the wisdom of God, right? Specifically as it relates to redemption, to salvation, to the forgiveness of sins in him. So we see these five evidences that point us to God Almighty, God who is all-powerful in himself. But then theologians have made nuances when it comes to God's power, right? As, as you see on your notes, right, they have distinguished between God's absolute power and God's ordained power. And we make this nuance when we look at texts like uh, uh, Matthew chapter 19, right? With God, all things are possible, right? So there is not restriction within God. And yet at the same time, God acts the way he does in creation because it's a part of how he has ordained all things, right? And so we see that quote there from Samuel Renahan. God's absolute power is God's ability to do all things possible, whether he does them or not. God's ordained power, on the other hand, is God's ability to do all that he has decreed or commanded in creation. So again, it's helpful for us to make that nuance. But then we get to this last question, right? And, and, um, uh, and you even hear this, right, from people who uh, uh, don't believe on the Lord, right? Um, unbelievers, um, and they might say, well, God can't, you're right, and then fill in the blank. Right. And then, you know, God can't make a rock so big that he can't pick it up or. Right. And they, they start to they start to say things. Right. But then it makes us ask the question, is there anything God 
can't do. And we even see in Scripture that Scripture says there are things that God cannot do. And how should we think of them, right? Scripture will say things like, God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot change. And God cannot deny himself, right? We think of that text from 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So how should we think of these things? So God cannot lie, sin, change, or deny himself because God, all of his attributes exist together cohesively. God cannot contradict his nature. So God's power will not contradict his truthfulness, right? So it will not overwrite and he will not lie. God does all his holy will, right? And because these attributes of God, they will not contradict one another. And ultimately, that is true because God is all his attributes, right? God is power. God is truth. God is righteous. And we talk about these attributes to make the right nuances in our mind. But God, God simply is. God is without boundaries, And so all of these exist cohesively together, right? And, and Sam Renahan kind of helps uh, explain this further. All contradictions or impossibilities together with everything prohibited by God's revealed will, right? All, you know, sin, are excluded from God's omnipotence. Omnipotence means that God can do all things. A contradiction or impossibility is not a thing. It would be a contradiction to exist and to not exist. It would be an impossibility to be a man and a fish at the same time. The fact that God cannot cause or do such things does not derive from a limitation in God's omnipotence, but in the impossibility of the things themselves. A contradiction is a contradiction is a contradiction. The scriptures say that God cannot sin, lie, be deceived, or deny himself. And yet God is omnipotent. In fact, God cannot do such things, and I, I like how he words this, precisely because he is omnipotent. If God, think about this, if God could be deceived or deny himself, he would no longer be God, right? He would be imperfect. He would not be able to do all his holy will. Right? And so when we think about God's power and we see this even dimly in ourselves, right? We even more so, right? Without creaturely limitation or in all eminence, we see it in God himself. So we've hit on God's liberty and we've hit on God's power. So any, any, um, any thoughts or questions, right, as we just kind of respond to what we've read so far? And then, and then we'll hop into, lastly, God's perfection or his blessedness. Any questions? I just, all right. All right. Let's keep going then. So then third on your notes, 
Third on your notes. God's perfection, right? Or as other theologians have said, God's blessedness. And Samuel Redahan quotes here in the beginning, he says, God all-sufficient, all-excellent, having no necessity of anyone or anything, but having in himself all perfection. Right, we see that definition there on your notes. God alone is the one who is blessed in himself, who has all happiness in himself. Right, uh, uh, Sam Renahan quotes the Puritan divine John Norton, who says, this attribute renders God as that infinite sea of happiness. Remember how we looked at Exodus 33 and verses 18 and 19? And we saw this idea of glory and name, right? And how they're equated together. Perfection is this aspect of God's nature, which shines out as glorious to his creatures. And, and see on your notes here, I really like the way Gerhardus Voss he put it, so he's got these little short systematic theologies, his reformed dogmatics, and he, with, with question uh, 132 and 133, he says, what is God's blessedness? And I love this definition. It is the inner sense of his perfection and his glory. It is called makarios, right? That's a Greek term, as the one blessed. And then I love this even in 133. What in distinction is God's glory? Well, answer, the revelation of the perfections of God outwardly like brilliant light. And then in Hebrew, he notes Psalm 24 in verse 8. And then in Greek, he notes in 1 Timothy chapter 1. All of this, God's glory is that shining out of all of his perfections and God's glory is what we behold. So let's look, let's look at some of these texts. So turn with me to um, Psalm 24. And let's look at verse 8. In Psalm 24, verse 8. Actually, you know what? I've actually got it on your notes, um, don't I? Yep. All right. Well, Psalm 24. Can I have someone who's willing to read Psalm 24, verse 8? Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Yes. What an amazing way to express the glory of God, right? Who is the highest ruler? Who is the eminent one as it relates to glory, right? It is the Lord, right? Or turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let's look at verse 11. Uh, verse 11. And we, uh, yeah, we do have it on your notes. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 11, where Paul says, in accordance with the gospel, and now, now note this, of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Right? So Paul could have said, right? In accordance with the gospel with which I have been entrusted. But it's almost like he can't help himself as he's thinking about salvation, right? And what does he do? He he inserts this, right? This, This magnificent little phrase, the glory of the blessed God. 
When we think of this term blessed, we think of this idea of overabundance, this exuberant happiness. And as redeemed sinners in Christ, the Lord Jesus talked about this, right? That we are blessed in Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, he noted what those characteristics are of those people who were in Christ, where he, where he said things like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, or blessed are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? That idea of blessed, this idea of happiness in Christ, this, this joy that we have in Christ. That is the joy that we have, and yet eminently, God does not need anyone else, but God has happiness and joy in himself, in and from himself. He is completely delighted in himself, right? And look at this language in 1 Timothy 6. Just go over, you know, one or two pages in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And then who will read verses 15 and 16 for us uh, of chapter 6? 1 Timothy 6 verses 15 and 16. Can I have a volunteer? at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable life, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Mm. Yeah, and, and look at that in verse 15, right? He who is, right, articular, the blessed and only sovereign, Right? God in a class of himself, right? by himself, blessed in himself. And I like here what Sam Renahan, as he comments, he says, We see God's glory as a ray of light through a prism, divided into numerous brilliant colors. So also, the glory of God is distinguished and perceived as many perfections in our minds, right? So God's blessedness is what God has in himself, and God's glory is putting on that perfection or blessedness for all to see. It is amazing as we think about the perfections of God's glory, of his wisdom, of his holiness, of his goodness, and how they appear to us as specific perfections as they come through this prism of God's revelation to us. And brothers and sisters, as we think about the glory of God, we cannot miss 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, right? I mean, that's like, we're not, we're not going to skip over that. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians, right? We hit on this when we talked about the Holy Spirit, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And can I have a volunteer read in ver, uh, verse 18? Excellent. Yes. So we see this idea that 
through the gospel and in the process of sanctification, God's glory is not just the goal of final transformation and resurrection, but it is also the means by which we grow in holiness, right? When you look in verse 18, right, for us who are in Christ, we, like it says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into what? Into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And brothers and sisters, for us who are in Christ, just like we thought about with other attributes of God, being redeemed in Christ, when we hear and see of these things in our mind, it makes us draw near. We want more of what we've tasted, right? And so with the greater duration with which we behold the Lord in His glory, the greater and greater degrees with which we will reflect that glory back. What a beautiful thought. What a beautiful way for us to think of God's perfection. Or we have, we have, we have one more minute. So let me turn, go to um, chapter 4. And, um, and we're going to read uh, verses 4 through 6. So chapter 4. Wasn't sure if we were going to have enough time, but I think we're going to be there. So 2 Corinthians 4. And let's read verses 4 through 6. Starting in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, note this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But then note this in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has what? Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now as believers in Christ, we not only see this glory like it was displayed in creation, but we see this glory in redemption, right? In light of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and men. We see this through the gospel. And this ties all the way back as we think about God's glory, we think about his perfections, and we think of that blessedness, blessedness with which he has in himself. It makes us respond in worship, right? It makes us think we want more of your glory. And so as we come to our conclusion, we think of those questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism where it starts out with that first question. What is man's chief end? What is man's highest purpose? And we respond, it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so together, brothers and sisters in Christ, we, beholding him in his glory, let us also love him who is glorious and let us obey him to reflect back his glory like a mirror.
All right. So we come to the end. So we've thought about God's freedom. We've thought about his power. And then we've thought about his perfection or his blessedness. Uh, any questions or comments um, or thoughts before we come to a close? I think one thing on the first part that makes that stands out to me on the, the liberty part is uh, like the Romans 9 and the Exodus 33 mm. about the choosing and, and the election. Uh, I think part of like, if I keep all four for me, you go like, well, why me? Hmm. Right? And yes. Because I'm around people that, um, you know, the veil hasn't been lifted. Yes. Um, like my own sins and past sins are not less than others. Yes. And so, and kind of no matter which way you say things, you can just see like it just doesn't click sometimes mm. with others. So I know for, for me, I ask, I kind of just, like, why me, why me? So I think this part is really helpful because it's the response is worship it and humility. Yes. Right? And that's, that's kind of where it's taken. So, uh, yeah, that, that stands out to me today. Yeah. You know, it's encouraging. I remember um, one of the things that just over and over again, I would, I would read Spurgeon sermons, and he'd be like, all right, well, how do you deal with pride? And over and over again, it was sovereign grace, right? Why me as opposed to the person next to me, right? Sovereign grace. And it does. It just makes you respond and worship, right? Absolutely. And so, um, it also occurred to me that when we talk about the question, is there going back to is there anything God can't do? What we see an awful lot of is is God defining Himself in those terms, like what He is not. There's the Catechism question: What is God? God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like man. We have this sort of carnal mind where we have to view everything within the context of what we know, right? Mm. And so we know that we're capable of. of good and bad behavior. So obviously God must be capable of that. And no, he has, to he has to clearly define what he is and what he is not. And that's why it's okay to say, I cannot lie. I can, I do good. I cannot do evil. Yes. He is the standard of all of these things. Yes. We're not trying to fit him into a box. Right. He is illuminating our minds to see what he is. And so by him declaring himself holy and good, that automatically creates, for lack of a better way of saying it, the opposite. And that's okay. He doesn't yes. have to encompass everything. Right? Yes. So it's, it's actually, you see it in scripture too, the, the, that, that whole thing, like it's not so much, it's actually sometimes more helpful to think about what he is not in mm. order for us to understand what he is. Yes, yeah, yeah, some of those different aspects. Okay. No, that's really helpful. Well, I know um, our, our, our time is up, um, so let's go ahead. Let's thank the Lord for our time. We'll, we'll come to a close. Father, Son, and Spirit, we do worship you, our blessed God, that you are completely blessed in yourself, and we do worship you and love you. Pray that you would help these truths to rivet into our heart, seal us even more so with these truths that are just absolutely delightful as we think of who you are especially for us in Christ. So we just pray, even now bless our morning worship as we gather together corporately as your people. In your name we pray, amen.